Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As winter descends upon us, season five of Style Stories aims to echo nature's cycle to stop, adapt and recover by highlighting stories of rebuilding, re-strengthening and reinvention after a period of struggle or turmoil. In a time of coldness, season five aims to warm your ears and hearts and help shed some light onto your style and your story. Today, I'm chatting with TV and film producer Marion Farrelly, affectionately known as Maz. As Maz's mantra goes, if you've watched it, she probably made it and won an award for it. Think shows like Big Brother, Celebrity Apprentice, Dancing with the Stars and X Factor, just to name a few. While she now focuses on keynote speaking and is dubbed the CEO Whisperer for her role in mentoring business leaders, Maz has a unique ability to cut through the white noise, demand your attention and invite your curiosity. And with a rebel heart and joyful love for fashion, you can be sure that Maz's style is interesting, makes an immediate impression and like all she does, deeply engages her audience. In keeping with Maz's impressive style, I've allowed her unique superstar qualities to shine bright in a Lurex animal print dress from Baz Inc and a selection of vintage jewellery from my collection. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Maz's story. Hi Maz. you're, You're comfortable with me calling you Maz. Yeah, people only call me Marion if I'm in trouble. Yes. So if someone calls up and they say, is that Marion Farrelly? I know it's the tax office because <laughs> everyone else calls me Mads. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming here today. Pleasure. Now, uh, you're known for um, interviewing tens of thousands of people who are all desperate to be on reality television. And my understanding is one of the things that you you say when you're recruiting to the, these these people in is one of the things that you ask them is why are you different and you? Yeah, I think it's one of the most important things in life that you have to be. Everyone is different. Yes. And we sometimes vanilla ourselves up a little bit. And I think, why would you do that? Because if you sound like everybody else, I can throw a dart into the marketplace and book anyone. But what I have to do is I have to need to book you because there's only one of you. And those are the people that I love in life. And everyone is interesting. But very often, very interesting people tell a very dull story about themselves. And I'm slightly obsessed with that. So I work with lots of corporates and I say, you have to be different. If you're not different... You are the same as everyone else. You don't want to be the same as everyone else, which is why I love clothes. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to finding out why you're different because I, I know your difference will be um, amazing. Uh, and I want to start by – I do this in all my interviews, but I start by going delving deep and, and getting right into your childhood as your first starting point. Can you paint a picture of what your formative years looked like? Yeah, I was really blessed because I lived in London, but my parents were Irish. So we would spend, I'd spend my school time uh, in London, and then for holidays we'd go to Ireland. So I had a really good upbringing of it being very modern and absolutely feral. So it was really nice. In London we didn't play out in the streets, because you can't really in London. Uh, But then when we went to Ireland... You know, it was game on. We were crackers. We right. just went out. We came back and we were hungry. Yeah. 
Uh, and I remember, I can remember knowing that I loved clothes on my fir- fourth birthday. And uh, my father said, I'm going to take you out to buy a dress. And I think that he thought we'd go into the first shop and I'd buy a dress. Uh, but we went to about 20 shops. And I think that was the moment he realised I was a little bit of a number. Yeah. You know, a little bit of that child. Uh, and apparently I just was like, no. Don't like that one, no. And then I think we went back to the third shop and I bought a dress there. But my mum always wanted to dress me in like little sailor dresses. And I just so wasn't going for that. I mean, I wanted, I think probably to look like a 70s hooker. I mean, <laughs> luckily she stopped me. Uh, so we'd compromise. But What did remember. that compromise look like? Uh, it would look like a smock dress, like what? a kind of... 70s, you know, I loved flares. I remember having yellow flares. Uh, and I was a giant child. Mm-hmm. So I could, you know, when I was four, I was wearing 12-year-old clothes. Right. Uh, and then when I was 12, I looked like I was 35. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was strange, I guess. But I can remember being very young and saving up my pocket money to buy Vogue. Like, genuinely, about seven, when other kids were buying lollies, I would buy Vogue and I would just look at the pictures, and by the age of probably about nine, you could show me a picture of a dress and I could tell you who designed it. I could tell you who the photographer was, probably who the hair and makeup was. Uh, And that never left me. I just was obsessed with clothes. Why do you think you pinned a kind of creative outlet as a child into fashion? What what stirred that in you? (sighs) Well, actually, when I was four, I'm going to sound like the most hideously awful four-year-old, and to be fair, I was. Uh, My mum apparently uh, says that uh, when I was very young, when I was about two, I would pull myself up in my cot and watch telly. Uh, She said, you know, you just, you'd be like climbing up. And um, she'd pop me in front of the telly, so very relaxed parenting, frankly. (laughs) And uh, I would watch telly. And when I was about four, I said to her, I'm going to be in there one day. I'm going to work in there one day because I thought that you actually worked in the telly. Yeah. Uh, So probably, I'd probably mapped it out very early on. Right. But I knew I wanted to work in fashion and I went to a very academic school and I knew that I wouldn't be that person. I mean, I did okay, you know, okay results. Uh, But when everyone else was saying, you know, I'd like to go off and split the atom, I was saying, I want to go to fashion school. And uh, they thought that was crackers. Yeah. So your, your parents, did, did they have a creative spirit in, the, in them? Um, were, were you living in an affluent house? What, what's, what was the dynamic? I think, I think looking back, my parents, they weren't, you know, they weren't creative. Well, they kind of were actually. My dad could do anything. They weren't creative in that they would sit around and paint. Mm. But they were creative in the way they lived their lives. And they were kind of way ahead of their time. Mm. Like I can remember my parents saying to me, uh, you have to have a further education. If you do nothing with it, we don't care. But you have to do it. Mm. So you have to have some level of further education. Uh, so all of us did and then dropped out, really. Uh, so none of us... My brothers were very academic. They were very smart and had degrees. Uh, but then went on to come to Australia, surf a bit, sit on the beach, and then they became builders. Right. Uh, so I think, I think my parents were very creative 
in the way they lived their lives, and they emigrated here. Uh, they moved here when they were 81 and 82. Right. Which is really adventurous. Yeah. You think they moved from London to Bondi. Mm. So I think, actually, I lived in a very creative environment without knowing that it was. So I think we lived creatively, mm. but... You know, I think in Ireland, you know, we're not famous for painting. We're famous for, uh, you know, poetry and writing and being troubled and, you know, getting drunk and telling beautiful stories. So that was certainly part of my childhood for sure. Right. Uh, but that, I think, I think it's in your soul. It's in my soul. Yeah. I was always creative and I still am and I will be forever because I can't help it. And if I don't do creative stuff... I feel like a saucepan that's boiling with the lid on. Yeah. It doesn't feel good. So I love it. It also sounds like you've always been very headstrong <laughs> and someone that um, knew what they wanted and how to go get that and, and older than their years. Like, you know, you, all those examples you've just given me, you knew at the age of two or four years old that you wanted to be on television, you knew to want to look for that particular dress, you were dressing older than your years. Um, would you say that's the kind of kid that you were, someone that was always a bit more headstrong or, or older than their years in their way that they viewed their world? Yeah, I'd say I was a pushy kid. I say to my friends, you know, only a mother could have loved me. I just don't <laughs> think I was a really... Particularly, like, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that kid that would be in the background. Mm. But, you know, I was the youngest and the only girl. So right. I just, I didn't really ask. I just took it, Yeah, you know. And I think I've probably lived my life like that, that I don't tend to see the problems in my way. I just think... Why would I not do that if I want to? So I think probably I'm just not terribly clever that I just think, <laughs> oh, I'll go and do that and I just go and do it. I, I would disagree with you, but sure. <laughs> um, do you think that because you were the youngest of a bunch of brothers that they kind of instilled a, a kind of subconscious confidence in you to just go out and because you just kind of had to follow suit and you were keeping up with the boys? Do you think there's anything to do with that in the way that you, you kind of came to be? I think... Having older parents was incredibly good mm. because my mum was, I think, 41 when she had me, which in the old days, in old money, uh, it was very, 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 very old. Yeah. Uh, so I think they were very wise. And I think that, yeah, they just... I was never really taught to be afraid of things. Yeah. I think I saw my dad just being fearless. Yeah. And... I do remember a job at MTV. I had a, I did a show there with um, a host who was, I think it's fair to say, a nightmare. Uh, and I've worked with lots of people, so <laughs> difficult to identify this person because I've worked with lots of people who were nightmares uh, and lots of people who were very, very charming. And uh, he wanted to fire everyone on the show and I managed to stop him. And he wanted to fire all the women I managed to stop him. He wanted to fire the other exec I managed to stop him. And then he wanted to fire me. And everyone had said... You know, you're bulletproof. No, 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 my time will come. Mm. My time will come when this person will want to fire me. And sure enough, he hid in the loo and he wouldn't come out. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I'll just leave. It's easier. And I 
went to my parents that weekend and I was telling them, kind of, you know, laughing about it. And my dad said, no, you're not going to make it easy for that man to fire you. You know, what, have you done anything wrong? He said, no, 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 I haven't. Really good job. It's the number one show. Mm. He said, uh, right, okay. So on Monday morning, you're going to go in there uh, and, you know, do you have a team meeting? I said, yeah, we have a team meeting every Monday. He said, okay, you're going to arrive late. So everyone's sitting down. And uh, I said, I think they've already replaced me. He said, right, so you walk in. Whoever's sitting in your chair, you just say, oh, this is my seat. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. He said, well, you've got to. Mm. And all weekend... I was sort of laughing about it and looking forward to it and wanting to wean myself and terrified. So that nice mix of, you know, whichever way you look at it, I always think things that scare you are either wonderful yes, because you're scared. And yeah. Isn't that lovely? Because yeah. it's a different emotion. It's exciting. Fear is often very exciting. So it's either really exciting or, uh, you know, funny or terrifying. So outside the room, and my heart is literally thumping and I definitely when I walk in there I will definitely wee myself (laughs) and I walked in and there was a guy who's now one of my best friends uh, sitting in my seat and I came in and I said oh this is my seat and he went yeah it is yeah I shouldn't be here and turned to the host and just said that's wrong that's really wrong and he got up and he left and I remember saying to my dad that was you know it was really funny and really awful and he said, I, I feel like you needed to toughen up a little bit. You needed to be kicked around a bit. Yeah. And he said, I think that this has been really good for you. So I think the more you're kicked, uh, the less it hurts because you just get used to it. Yeah. And you get better at dodging the kicks and anticipating them. And I think uh, probably I'm quite good at it. In terms of your relationship with your dad, was his advice always important to you? Did you put him on a pedestal? Uh, no, I thought I knew everything. Uh, and I still do. I mean, I haven't changed at all. I'm a nightmare <laughs> adult. Uh, yeah, I mean, the wonderful thing about growing up is that you think your parents know nothing until you grow up and you go, oh, my God, you're really smart. Mm. And it's, you know, it's that beautiful thing of you get really smart as you're older and you think, oh, wouldn't it have been great if I was this smart when I was 20? Uh, so it's just the cycle of life, isn't it? That, yeah. you, you know, I thought I knew everything. And... Yeah, I think I knew they were wise, but, you know, I just wanted to do my thing. You brought your, your, this beautiful scarf with you today that your dad gave to you. Why does that mean something, something to you? Uh, we used to do lots of holidays. And I think, you know, I've worked in the media pretty much all my life. And it's really easy to disappear, you know, up your own bum. And um, I'm firmly up my own bum. And spending time with my parents would remind me that really simple things in life are astounding. And they absolutely lived in the now. That's why I think they were incredibly creative, way ahead of their time people. And we would be driving through the countryside and uh, my dad would say, you see all those trees? You go, yeah, and you go, who do you think counts them? Do you think anyone knows how many trees there are in Australia? Imagine if you had that job. And then my mum would say, 40 shades of green. There are 40 shades of green. Have a look at all of those. They're such beautiful trees. And I thought, oh, my God, yes. I'm thinking about, you know, tomorrow I've got a meeting. I've got this. I've got this. And they were looking out the window and seeing incredible beauty around them all the time. And then they'd have a conversation about cattle for an hour and a half. (laughs) 
And <laughs> I thought, God, when did I turn into that media nightmare? And I think it was probably when I was about four. Uh, and we went to um, a shop that sold alpaca goods in Braidwood. And my dad bought my mum uh, a beautiful cardigan. He bought me that scarf. And my dad's idea of torture would be, you know, if he was kidnapped and tortured, it wouldn't be anything physical, it would be shopping. They'd just say, we're going to take you shopping. And he'd go, brilliant, I'll tell you anything you want. Uh, so the fact that he actually came to a shop with us mm. and was engaged enough to buy some stuff uh, was astounding. And, you know, I think I'm probably quite like my dad. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I'm probably very like my dad. You said before... Um, in terms of planning a television show, it's like planning a wedding in that, you know, you, you really have to have prepared and controlled every element of the situation to ensure that nothing goes wrong. Um, big brother, case in point. Uh, that desire to put a controlled environment in place, is that something that um, has any relationship to your childhood? Uh, no, I actually really like TV when it's on the border of chaos and rebellion. Mm. Uh, so I think if you create structure, it gives you great freedom. When you have structure, uh, you're able to be creative. So the first time you drive somewhere, you have to pay attention to the road, and I'm turning left, and I'm turning right here, and you can't think of anything else. When you've driven that route a hundred times, you can think. Mm very freely and you'll think about fun stuff and you'll put the radio on, you'll dance around a little bit. When you have structure, it gives you freedom, I think. Uh, I personally like TV shows when they're uh, about to be out of chaos because mm. I think they're more exciting. So I would say, uh, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Yep. Uh, and that's just, you know, smart in life, I think. But I love it when things go wrong. You know, I remember uh, making Big Brother about 75,000 years ago. And there was a guy called Merlin on it. And Merlin, uh, as he was evicted, took a little poster he had uh, sewn into his T-shirt uh, that said, free the refugees. And he sat down and he put tape over his mouth and he held up this sign and uh, you know, it went crazy. And I remember my lovely friend, Matty Apps, who's uh, a genius and a fantastic TV producer, a beautiful human, uh, saying to me the next day, oh, God, that'd be the worst night of your life, wouldn't it? No, <laughs> that's one of the best nights ever. Yeah, it's you know it was utter chaos. Yeah, we had no idea who's going to do, uh, and that's great. It's wonderful, and I love that he took us on. He should. Yeah. So I loved it when people would fight Big Brother, right? And I like it when people break rules, uh, and I like it when people are rebellious. Going back to that desire for rebellion, were you a rebellious teenager? Did you oh, like yeah. to break the rules? Uh, yeah, I mean, I still do. I can't help myself. Mm. If, you know, there are stairs going up and down, I have to go down the up. <laughs> and my friends would just go, what is wrong with you? I, go, I don't know. Why? I don't know. Why is that? I have to do it. I think it's fun. Okay. And I think also, I think my dad was like that, that he just... Uh, my earliest memory of my dad is being in London and walking past a big car showroom. And in the oldie days, uh, they used to stick the price of the car onto the windscreen and all of the numbers had fallen off apart from five. So it looked like this car was five pounds. 
And I remember there being maybe about six or seven people with us. So it was a Sunday. Maybe we were all going off to lunch or something. And my dad said to me, go inside and give that man five pounds and say you want the, you know, Mercedes. So, uh, and my dad was really laughing. So I didn't really understand what was going on. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go and do this. So I went in and I gave the guy five pounds and I said to him, I'd like to buy the Mercedes outside. And the guy was literally laughing his head off. Yeah. You know, where'd you get this money from, you know? And then he looked out, and my dad's there with his friends, and they're all laughing. So I think he saw fun in everything, and he just didn't really care about rules. He just didn't really care. Not in a, not in a mean way, because he's a very, very, very kind human, but he just saw fun in breaking rules. Yeah. And, you know, I was, you know, I was a nightmare at school. I think, uh, I think I was voted head girl, and I think I might have been the first head girl that the teachers vetoed uh, <laughs> in the history of the school, and I went to a very old school. Uh, so I was always kind of naughty. But popular. Yeah, I think so, because, yeah, I was just a bit of a rebel. I was a bit funny. Uh, I was a producer, you know, I think I was a producer from a very early age. Mm. All of us are producers. As a teenager, though, were you were you a charming, naughty girl? And what did you? How did you dress? How did you represent yourself? Did that come out in your clothing? And oh, for sure, yeah. I used to uh, bunk off school and go shopping a lot. Where? Tell uh, me about your London shopping so days. Yeah, I I do my fantasy shopping uh, down Bond Street. So mm. I'd always loved Chanel. I'd loved the Chanel store. Mm. You know, I just loved it. Uh, I'd go to South Moulton Street uh, and St. Christopher's Place for kind of slightly higher-end, more obscure stuff. I'd go to the King's Road for slightly more crazy stuff. Uh, Camden Lock for uh, new stuff. Uh, I loved vintage shopping. Mm. Uh, I think everyone in life has unique skills. My friend Fee can find a parking space anywhere. Like she'll say, take a left about 100 yards down. I go, what, do you have some sort of radar? She's always right. Yeah. I can go into a Vinnie's or a Salvo's and find all the designer stuff and the cashmere and the silk. Yeah. Uh, you know, I literally go along the rail and I go, try that. You know, this is Kenzo. And she'll go, I've just done this rail. How can you find it? So, well, it was my job. Yeah. Uh, so I We'd, think... We would have some fun together. <laughs> I love a Vinny shop. I yeah. really love it. Yeah. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's the rebel. It's the challenge. It's the not straightforwardness of it. It's the not straightforwardness. <laughs> it's like going to the casino because you think, I might come away with nothing. I might come away, come away with something. Yeah. And also, if you're there on the right day and someone's just had a clear out... Yeah. And I go, man, that's good. Yeah. So I found, you know, Chanel bags, uh, Dior suits. I mean, just everything. Mm. I'm, um, yeah, I'm good at it. So you had an instinct for it. You went into fashion styling as your first career path. Is that correct? Yeah. So I did it. Uh, I think I did work experience when I was at school. I certainly did work experience uh, when I was at college. And I did really varied work experience. So I worked on uh, a magazine called Woman Magazine, which was uh, kind of mass market, maybe, you know, it was very safe. And then I worked on ID, which was the exact opposite. Mm. Uh, and I think I was quite 
smart and I thought, how can I get a job here? So I'll make myself indispensable. How can I do that? Well, the, the most obvious thing is everyone will notice how the place looks. So I would always make the place look great. Hmm. Uh, the fashion cupboards were amazing. You know, I was super tidy. Uh, you know, I would arrive before everyone else. If they liked coffees, I'd have coffee ready for them. Uh, I just, I worked really, 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 really hard. And I think I was quite brave. Uh, so pretty much everyone that I did work experience for employed me. Hmm. And I worked, I was really blessed that I worked for a free mag uh, called Girl About Town with a woman called Anne Drummond who is a an incredible stylist and because it was a free magazine we could do whatever we wanted you know we just could do whatever we wanted mm. and it's very unusual in life to be given that brief yeah. uh, but I was given that brief uh, so we had lots of models at the beginning of their careers and the model agencies liked us because we were brilliant photographers because very often they're doing lots of advertising. They can't do what they want mm. and they're creative people. So doing what you want was amazing. Uh, so people like Naomi Campbell would work for us. I think Naomi Campbell did her first ever job with us. Uh, we worked with amazing photographers who were doing Vogue one day and then us the next day. But also clothes make you feel amazing. Mm. And... You know, when you wear colour, you've got a little spring in your step. You know, when you wear really nice underwear, you move differently. Yeah. And I remember my boss, Anne, uh, saying she'd done a movie with Bianca Jagger. And Bianca Jagger had said, you know, I want all silk underwear. And Anne was saying, but at no point do we ever see your underwear. And she said, yeah, but I'll move differently. Mm. And I thought, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So I think um, clothes are the story of you. And every day you paint a picture of who you are by what you choose when you put your hand into the wardrobe. Yeah. And I do, I do very little telly now, but I do lots of work with corporates. And I really encourage people to have a look. Because say, imagine we're at a conference and you look like everybody else. There are 100 people in the room. You have 1% of my attention. Yeah. That's not much. Yeah. Now, if you look different to everyone else in the room... You leap from 1% to 50% because there's you and then there's everyone else in a grey suit. What story does your clothes tell about you? Uh, I think probably that I'm a creative, uh, that, you know, I dress... I would never style anyone the way I dress. So when I was a stylist and I'd walk into rooms, uh, I could see that moment of fear... And the first thing I would say is, I'm not going to make you look like me, it's fine. <laughs> and you could see them kind of going, oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, so my friends say it's eccentric, but somehow it works. Yeah. And I'm never quite sure whether it's a compliment or not. Although I say, only you could wear that. And you think, I'm not sure that's a compliment either. Uh, I take them as compliments. I, I think probably that I'm a creative that... One of the things that I think I'm really blessed with in life is I just don't really care what people think very much. Mm. And it's so freeing. And when I do keynotes, I say to people, write down all the names of the people you really care about. And, you know, for everyone who's listening, do it. Do it tonight over a bottle of wine. Do it now over a bottle of wine. Uh, write down all the names of the people you care about. And then write down in the next column whether they'll still love you if you mess up in life. Because mm. they will. So actually, just don't really care what people think about you. Because yeah. as you get older, you realise that actually, 
no one is thinking about you. <laughs> You're the only one thinking about you. I think there's a great Churchill uh saying he says when you're in your 20s you worry about what people are saying about you and then when you're in your 40s you don't really care and when you're in your 50s you realize no one has ever been speaking about you or thinking about you at all (laughs) and there's something very freeing in that yeah so I dress the way I like I really care if people like it or not were you more eccentric at the time that uh, of being a stylist I think when you're a stylist you actually don't really want to be the style, stylish person in the room. So it's one of those funny things. I used to think, why did the makeup artist not wear makeup? And then I'd look at myself and I'd think, I'm wearing black leggings and a black polar neck. Now, there would be perfect leggings and a perfect polar neck. Uh, but I very much kind of felt that my job was to disappear into the background. And I think, you know, producing's like that. And what I do now with training, I say to people, if I'm training you, no one should know that you've been trained. So if I've done my job perfectly, no one should know that I've been in. You should just be a much better version of you. don't want to change you in any way, but I do want you to be the best version of you you can possibly be. So you will look better, you'll sound better, and you'll say stuff that's more interesting, because that's my job. Mm. My job as a producer is to make sure that you look amazing, and you sound amazing, and everything works, and what you say is amazing. My job is to make you the best version of you you can be. So... Uh, when I do keynotes, I very much think about the background. I think every background is a black psych, so I don't wear black really. So I'll wear, you know, red or white or something, you know, yellow, something that pops. Uh, I know that there'll be a group photo at the end, so I, I always wear a colour that pops. So I think, you know, I would like you to notice me and not them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm a producer and. So do you think when you were a stylist, you kind of still played that role in terms of not trying to force what you were doing onto the person that you were trying to celebrate and celebrating them yeah. in what you were putting them in? So when I went uh, on go-sees, I would... Uh, so that's, you know, when you go for a meeting with someone. Yep. I probably did look like a stylist. Uh, when I did jobs... I tended to not look like a stylist. So if I was working with celebrities, I would very much be in a kind of uniform. Mm. Uh, if I was going to the shows, that was you know a different thing. You go yeah. to the shows, you're showing off. Yeah. So you worked for Lynn Franks, who... Yeah, well, Lynn Franks uh, was my boss's agent. So essentially she was uh, acting as you know our agent. Right. And... Uh, Absolutely Fabulous was based on her. And my life was really like that. But because I'd done this job since I left school, I didn't know that that was odd. Right. So I didn't know that, you know, going to parties every single night and drinking champagne every night in incredible hotels uh, was unusual. Uh, But it was, you know, it was amazing and wonderful and exciting and it was everything you think being a stylist in London would be. So give us a story. What's like, what's a, a great ab fab moment that you remember that could have <sighs> only happened in that, that point of time? Uh, I think I was walking along uh, the King's Road and past uh, Catherine Hamlet's store. And uh, Catherine Hamlet was the designer at the time. And she had one of my shots 
blown up into this huge poster. And I, I remember just walking along and kind of stopping and looking at it and thinking, oh my God, wow, that's, wow. Uh, so there were little moments like that. I mean, all of it was crazy. You turn up at the office and, uh, you know, 30 people would be chanting for the Dior account, uh, but they would be chanting, you know, to get the Dior account. Uh, so that was kind of unusual back in, you know, the 80s. Uh, but, I mean, the funny thing is, it just didn't seem odd. It was very druggy. I guess that was kind of interesting that, uh, you know, I would turn up to work and there would be lines of coke on the table. And, uh, you know, I, I'm blessed because I was never really, you know, into drugs. So I think that took the mystery out of drugs because uh, I've been in industries that are, you know, very druggy. Uh, so that kind of, I guess, was odd. I mean, I kind of guess it was, of course it was odd, <laughs> that you turn up for work and there'd be lines of coke <laughs> on the table. People would you like a line? you go, no, I'll have a cup of tea. <laughs> so I was always very uh, square. And I remember being really young and uh, my second crush after John Lennon was Bob Geldof. <laughs> I know, eclectic taste. <laughs> and I remember my mum saying to me, because, you know, she wanted me to do well academically, and, you know, I just found it dull. And I remember saying to me, you know, if you want to hang out with people like Bob Geldof, you better be interesting. Because if he's going to sit down and have a conversation with you, it needs to be an interesting conversation. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, she's right. She said, you better be well-read and know about politics and know about what's going on in the world and culturally aware. And uh, so I think that was, a, that was one of those pivotal moments in life. Uh, but, I, yeah, I very much thought that... Drugs were for people that were a little bit weak. I thought, you know, so I wasn't really interested. You you have an interest in human psychology, though. Like Fascinated you, by people. Obviously, all the amazing reality TV shows you've been a part of, whether it's Dancing with the Stars, Celebrity Apprentice, or Big Brother, you know, obviously they delve into the psychology of humans. Uh, did you find... Um, the other part of, of those particular shows is that there's a lot of characters that are put in there because they are very divisive. Um, the fashion world also holds a lot of those types of characters. Did you did you find that you were attracted to that dichotomy um, in the fashion world or did that is it something that was always there in you, that the psychology between good and evil? Like, what? Uh, when I chose people for TV shows, I genuinely chose people I really liked. And I remember, I think it was the first Celebrity Apprentice, and saying all to, to all the celebrities, uh, you know, I want you to have a really good time. And I think it was Dicko who said, uh, you know, I bet you really want us to fight. I said, no, I don't. Because families don't want to sit down and watch TV with their kids and watch adults fighting. They want to watch something funny and sweet. So I would say to them, I want it to be like a big pantomime. I want it to be really good fun. I want it to be the party that people want to be at. You will fight inevitably because you're tired and you're competitive. So it will happen. I'd rather you didn't. So I was always about uh, having a big audience. So I think, you know, what do these people want? 
uh, they want to sit down with their kids and watch something. What can I give them that's interesting? So I've always been obsessed with interesting. Always. Uh, I've always cast people that I thought were really interesting. And people will always fight. Mm. But it's not as simple as them just being funny, right? Like, I mean, the, the most... Um, engaging interactions is with those people you don't know whether you love them or hate them you know it's that real conflict and you kind of want to know more to try and figure it out and I don't know that we ever do you know and then those characters that are incredibly charming but incredibly cunning and competitive how do you reconcile all of that? Uh, I think we're all all of those things and one of the things that I used to find quite funny and uh, very uh, lovely. People would say, you know, you put those people on that show because you knew they'd fall in love. I'd say, um, it's really nice of you to think that, but mm. I'm just not that clever. <laughs> I cast people that I thought were really interesting, people I wanted to know more about. Yeah. And I made the X Factor, and some people have the X Factor. They really do. Some people walk into a room, and you want to know so much more about them. You just are fascinated by them. And I'll tell you a very quick story that I have told before, but it's, um, it still amuses me. In the UK, when uh, I was doing One Big Brother, we had 110,000 people apply. 110,000. I mean, you know, throw a dart into the pile of casting, really. Uh, and uh, we uh, asked people to send in videos, and we watched the first minute of each video, which is a lesson in life, always be interesting in the first minute. And there was one guy sitting in his kitchen... He's probably about 35. He wasn't particularly good-looking, not good-looking, funny, not funny, interesting, not interesting. But there was something about him that was really charismatic. And when I say that, I mean you couldn't stop looking at him. And I was so interested in him. I wanted to know more and more and more about him. And uh, sent him off for a psych test. So he was probably down to like the final 50 or 60 uh, from 110,000. So big deal. And... Uh, the psych uh, would do a report, you know, to make sure. So the system that we use is green, amber, red. If someone mm. is in the red, you don't touch them. If mm. they're amber, you discuss them. If they're green, they're good to go. And uh, the psych called, which was unusual, and said, uh, you know what you make of you know, Fred? I said, I love Fred. Love him. He said, what do you love about him? Oh, I don't know, really. He said, I think he'd be really interesting in the house. He said, uh, why? What would he do? I said, oh, that's interesting. I think he would cause conflict. He makes me feel uncomfortable. He said, do you like him? I said, I like him for telly. He said, but do you like him like him? I'm like, no, not really, no. Mm. Would you like to meet him? Not really, actually, no. And uh, he said, this is good because never in my career have I met anyone more likely... Uh, and he ticks every box to be a serial killer. Mm. And at the time, you know, I thought, well, I must go and tell the police. And he went, don't <laughs> go and tell the police. That's, you know, quite a bad thing to do. Uh, but he said, your instinct is really working, uh, that you can kind of read that that guy is not like us and he is wired in a different way. Mm. And he said, you know, that's what you're finding interesting about him. So I like it when uh, shows are on the verge of chaos. I really liked that with Big Brother. I liked it when they would fight back. I liked it when uh, things went wrong. 
uh, it's always much more interesting when things go wrong than when they go right. Is that what kept you in reality TV for so long? Uh, no, I was good at making it, so people gave me jobs. Because yeah. when you're giving away 20 million to someone to make a show, it has to work, because that's the biggest amount of money you're going to give anyone that year. Yeah. And it's make or break. Uh, and I was very good at making them, and you know they were all number one. So, you know, I was a safe bet, really. I was a safe pair of hands. So, you obviously had some very senior positions. Did you find that how you represented yourself had to change to step into that powerful position? Uh, yeah, I would dress differently for uh, different shows. So, I helped create Q&A at the ABC. Uh, I would dress very differently from that meeting than when I was, you know, having lunch with the judges from The X Factor. So I would sort of mirror the show a little bit. You know, when I first uh, met Mark Boris, you know, I didn't look as eccentric as I did, you know, two weeks into the show because mm. uh, I didn't want my clothes to be a distraction from me. Uh, and I think also it's very easy to pigeonhole women and to think, you know, she got that job because she's, you know, married to so-and-so or dating so-and-so. So uh, I had to try much harder than everyone else mm. to be taken seriously, I think. And when I was very young, I was running big shows uh, at the BBC in the big entertainment shows. And, uh, yeah, I would dress in a certain way. I would dress kind of powerfully because I wanted uh, to be taken more seriously. So I think my clothes probably did reflect uh, my nature. And then I reached a stage where I was, uh, it's going to sound like a terrible thing to say, but so senior I just thought it doesn't matter. Mm. And there's, you know, there's a great freedom in that as well. Uh, when I worked on Big Brother, I would always wear whatever I wanted. And uh, Gretel used to say to me, why are you wearing a long dress? Have you just come from a party? I said, I just felt like wearing a long dress today. She said, right, okay. I mean, yeah, not very practical. <laughs> and I remember one day wearing a crew T-shirt and about 30 people saying to me, are you okay? I went, yeah, I just spilt something down my <laughs> top and I've got a crew T-shirt. Yeah, we thought maybe you were depressed or something. You're not wearing, you know. So, um, yeah, I kind of, I think back then I probably looked like a caricature of myself because I remember my flatmate Ben saying to me, um, Oh, I knew you'd arrived at work because someone said, I heard the swish of fair of, of um, I saw the, oh, sorry. So my flatmate Ben said, um, I knew you were at work because I heard the swish of fur and I saw the glint of light off enormous sunglasses. <laughs> I knew you were here. And uh, oh yeah, I've got a look. But I didn't really know I had a look. Was it a, were you the devil wears Prada? Uh, yeah, I suspect I was. And I love that movie. And <laughs> I really like uh, the character because I think... Uh, yeah, my favourite moment in it, I think, is when someone says she would do Florals to Spring. <laughs> and she says, Florals to Spring. <laughs> How cutting edge. And that would be me at work. Yeah. You know, people would suggest something really obvious. Like, oh, come on. You know, my mum would suggest that. And she's yeah. 98 and in the care home. Uh, you get paid to think a little bit harder... Yeah. And I'm obsessed with people thinking differently. And it's um, something I do with corporates now, that I run workshops for them. I do keynotes on thinking differently. Because if you're thinking like everyone else, what's the point? Do you think you engendered that sense of fear? Uh, no, absolutely not. I Well, I don't think I did. I mean, people would say, you know, I was afraid to meet you. Uh, 
And I'd say, why? You know, I'm, I think I'm very kind and very approachable. Uh, and they would say, well, it's just the stuff that you've done. So I think maybe that was a bit scary. But I ran my teams uh, just very casually. And I remember uh, my, one of my bosses saying to me, you, know, you can't be friends with your team because you can never tell them off. I said, but I never have to. I never have to ever tell anyone off because they want to do their absolute best. And I'm very clear about what I want at the beginning. And I would write up on the wall, this show is number one. And I would say to my teams, if you don't want to be number one, go home because this is what we're doing. So we're going to work a little bit harder than everyone else. We're going to think harder. When you leave here, you'll learn more mm. because you've just been on the number one show. I want you to walk out of here knowing an enormous amount more than when you walked in. And I want you to earn more and I want you to go off and run big shows. And... Uh, the people who've worked for me have outlapped me magnificently, and I'm very proud of that. I really like it. So you've said um, that you see the future of reality television um, embodying soft sciences, so like understanding the why behind the the way that we do things. Um, is that is that just the psychology of how we how we work in whatever field it is? whether it's interior renovations or, you know, um, I don't know, music. Is that where you're going with, with that comment? What uh, we do in TV, or I used to do in TV when I worked in TV, is you're working on shows that are two years ahead, but you're thinking probably five years ahead. So we would very often sit down and open a bottle of wine and say, what's the future hold? My skill is uh, reaching a broad audience, so I have an ability to message in a way that lots of people like to hear, and that's mm. what I do with corporates now. Think, you know. So the the future then of of television, where do you think? What do you think is the meaning that we want from that? Looking five years down the track, I think we will always want to watch stuff. We'll always want escapism, and I. Never really wanted to make reality TV. You know, I was good at it, and uh, people gave me money for it, so I did it. Uh, but I remember sitting with um, uh, my beautiful friend Tim Tony on Big Brother, and I said, "What are we doing here, Tim? What are we doing here, making making Big Brother? How did we get here?" Mm. I said, I, "I got into this to make big, you know, shows about politics that changed the world. I wasn't." This wasn't where I was going to end up. Yeah. And he said, so today there are you know, nurses working in wards, working really hard. There are teachers working with kids that are a nightmare. There are parents having a tough time. Uh, and when they get home, they want to catch up with some pals on the telly and they want to watch something that makes them feel a bit jolly, makes them feel like part of a club. And that's what we do. We make people feel a little bit better. And that made me feel a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> about doing it. Uh, but I think that we will always want to watch content. We will always want to watch stories that are very well told. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, when I do consultancy on TV shows. I don't, I've made a TV show for an incredibly long time. Uh, but I say to people, have a think about not following the traditional route of going to a network so I love podcasts because podcasts can go to air without a network, without the heavy hand of production. You can just do it yourself mm. and you've done it. And you've done it really well and beautifully. Uh, 
I think that TV would do the same. If I was, if I was, in the NRMA or Booper, I would buy Breaking Bad because it's all about having life insurance and having right. health insurance. If I wanted to sell health insurance rather than running an ad and paying for an ad that no one's going to watch because, as we know, the more money you have, the fewer ads you see. Uh, you know, it's a, a system that's a, a, it's a very hard system for my friends that run advertising. Uh, you'd, you'd create content that people actually, A, want to watch and, B, answers the question, which is, you know, why should you buy health insurance? Mm. Yeah, well, watch this. And at the end of it, I would suspect that sales of health insurance went up after Breaking Bad. So I think that content and sales will, uh, I think if we're smart, uh, they will marry. And that's very, you know, worrying for networks. There'll still be networks, but I think lots of content will happen uh, sort of more organically and we will find it. If content is good, people will find it. Mm. And in terms of your future, what does your future hold? Uh, I love what I do now, which is I work with uh, individuals and corporates and help them to be fascinating, so people are fascinated by them. I couldn't have done it unless I had worked in TV and uh, understood audiences and what audiences want. Uh, I do a lot of work that is you know, creative thinking. I couldn't have done that without working in fashion. I do the ABCD. Uh, of you know, reinvention. A is your attire, because the first thing we see you know, is what you look like. B is your body language. C is your content. D is your delivery. So I still... It incorporates my fashion time and my TV time, I think. Uh, so I'm, I'm obsessed with people's messaging. And, like, I really am obsessed. I love that, you know, a year after a keynote, people will write to me and say, I still do what you suggested. My business has turned around. I like that I help people stand out. I help people get jobs. Uh, I help people get dates. Uh, I help people, you know, with interviews. Uh, and I help people think differently because, like lazy producers, we can be very cliched and we have to be really careful we're not... Yep. We have to be very careful that we are unique and that we have a unique selling point and that we're different in a good way and remembered for all the right reasons. And I love uh, that I can do that with people and make them more confident. I really like that. And my last question to you, Maz, um, I ask all, all my uh, guests this question, but when, when you're um, in your 80s and 90s, uh, what do you think, style-wise, your unique selling point will be? What, what, how do you think you'll be dressing yourself? Uh, exactly the same, I would have thought. Uh, one of my favourite moments in my life was my mother was about 94 and she tried a dress on and she said, does this make me look a bit old-fashioned? <laughs> and I went, you're 94. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine what would make you look old-fashioned, like Bodicea's outfit? <laughs> you're 94. <laughs> and she goes, I know, but you know what I mean. Uh, I don't think there are any rules about age. Uh, and people say, you know, you can't wear short skirts over 14. Think, says who? No one makes the rules for my life except me. I make the rules for my life. So um, I will wear whatever I want, however I want to wear it. And some people will stare at me and other people will say, I like the way you look. And my coffee will taste good whether they're nice to me or not. And, you know, the And the people that matter won't mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as Mark Twain said, the people that matter, yeah, don't mind, and the people yeah. that mind don't matter. And 
I won't care and I will love putting on clothes and I will love clothes and I'll be like that forever. I love them. Yeah. Well, Maz, thank you so much for sharing your stories with me today from the ultimate storyteller. Well, thank you. Brilliant, uh, brilliant questions. You're really, really good. And I've listened to the podcast and it's really lovely. Uh, and your questions aren't the usual questions, which is great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, which is brilliant because cool. it makes it more interesting uh, for listeners. But also, you know, when you're sitting in this chair, it makes it more interesting. Oh, I'm glad that that is your experience yeah, it's today. So. so thank you very much. You have a lot of choice. There are a lot of people out there to speak to. So I'm very honoured. Oh, I feel very here. privileged to have you here today. Get us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. If the X Factor is that elusive something that gets you noticed, then Maz Farrelly doesn't just own it, she bottles it, sells it, and has millions of people swallow it up. Maz may, as a seven-year-old, have saved her pocket money for Vogue and started her illustrious career in fashion, but she is as crafty as she is creative and knows that dressing is a critical tool to being noticed and defining your point of difference. And while she does dress intentionally, Maz is very good at just doing Maz and doesn't care what other people think. She has an innate ability to cut through barriers to get to what she wants and not see the problems in her way. Whether she's styling Naomi Campbell, winning at Big Brother or just rifling through racks at an op shop. And it's this can-do confidence coupled with a love of rebellion and chaos and a quick wit that celebrates the human spirit that makes her and her style absolutely fabulous. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed hearing this style story, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast and give it a rating to help other like-minded listeners find these stylish stories.